Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And yes, your feed is not lying to you. This is a brand new episode of Willosophy. Is the podcast back? Who knows? The honest answer is who knows. I'm just going to dip my toe back in the water, see how it feels. And uh, it might be regular episodes. It might not be regular episodes. I might stop entirely again. I am not sure at this stage, but I can guarantee you that today's chat is an absolute fresh chat recorded only a few days ago, at least if you are listening to this when it first came out with the brilliant Mandy Nolan. If you don't know who Mandy Nolan is, well, have a listen to this podcast. You'll find out a little bit about who Mandy Nolan is. But Mandy has been involved in the Australian comedy scene for pretty much as long as there has been an Australian comedy scene. She is also an incredible activist, particularly in the northern rivers of New South Wales, which we will talk about a bit in this podcast as well. Uh, We had limited time, unfortunately, because as you can tell from this chat, I really could have talked to Mandy for twice as long, three times as long, and hopefully as I get back into doing the show, the shows will get a little longer as well. I know that's not what you're meant to tell people. You know, in the world of uh, fancy podcasting these days, they do a whole bunch of tests around the fact that people switch off at 20 and 40 and your podcast should only be this long. Well, you know what? Shut the fuck up. Is that what I say to those people? <laughs> I like long podcasts. And the truth is, it's a podcast. You can stop it whenever you want to stop it. Yes, the long rambly intros are back as well. I'm sorry to tell you that. So if you thought anything... It was going to be changed in that department, then uh, yes, you were sadly wrong. I am going to ramble on a little bit at the top of these episodes, but I love Mandy Nolan. Uh, part of the reason that I brought the podcast back to have a chat to Mandy is just because I am fascinated by a story that Mandy has to tell about running for the federal election, and uh, she has. there's a documentary about it, See Mandy Run, uh, which you can find online. We talk about that a little bit in this episode, and she is also doing a show called The Candidate, which is uh, playing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. She has a bunch of other shows that you can find at mandynolan.com.au. She's an incredible activist. She is an incredible comedian. Uh, She is... An incredible member of a community living in this part of the world. Uh, you are super aware of how important people like Mandy are to the communities in which they live. So it was a great pleasure to sit down with her and have this conversation. So at least at the start, uh, most of these episodes are probably just going to be with people that I would like to sit down with and have a chat with. I mean, that's really all the podcast used to be anyway. But occasionally we'd have some famous guest or celebrity uh, this is not uh, the big launch back in regard to that. I'm going to talk to people that I find interesting and fascinating that I think uh, you should hear about more. So Mandy Nolan is definitely one of those people, and I hope you're going to enjoy this chat. It's insightful. It's very funny. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast or if you enjoy any of my work, there are simple ways that you can support it. Firstly, you could sign up to the Patreon page for this, patreon.com slash philosophy. There are some people still signed up to that who stuck with us for the whole time that we were not on air. Thank you to you people. Uh, if you are not keen on signing up to a Patreon page because you're not sure if I'm going to fucking put the podcast out regularly, yeah, well, that's a, a pretty sensible position to be taking, I would say. So here's what you could do instead is you could buy my book. It is called I Am Not Fine, Thanks. It is available both in regular book form and audio book form. So you can find that wherever you find books. And I also have a touring show, a brand new touring show. It is called Willuminate. Uh, by the time you hear this, there might be time to catch me in Darwin. I'm in Darwin on Thursday, uh, Thursday night, if you're hearing this in the first week. Then after that, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for two weeks, the Sydney Comedy Festival, the Brisbane Comedy Festival. I'm going to Perth to do shows for the first time in a long time. I'm going to Townsville to do some shows. Uh, anyway, 
heaps of places all over Australia. Comedy.com.au is the place to go to find out all the information about my touring. But I would love to see you at the new show. I've had a good time putting it together. Uh, if you would like to see last year's show, it is available for free on ABC iView. You can catch that version of the show. Um, as anyone who saw the actual live version of that show uh, last year will know, that's not the entire show. When you're doing one of those specials, you have to do about 60 minutes of material and so not everything that was in last year's show made the cut so that's why you should come and see it live you would have seen an incredibly uh great routine about uh, why joe rogan is too afraid to suck his own penis that uh was 10 minutes of the best comedy that i've ever written that we absolutely could not get past the lawyers for broadcast so that's why you've got to come and see the show live when it's touring but if you can't get to one of those touring places last year's show were logical uh, is on ABC iView for free, and the new show, Will Illuminate, is touring all around the country, and I would love to see you there in the audience. Um, all right, I think that's it. Oh, I have other podcasts, uh, Tofop, uh, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup, uh, an AFL-adjacent podcast. So if you're interested in mindless footy chat, my friend Charlie and I have a podcast called Two Guys, One Cup, uh, which is exclusive to the listener app. And then uh, we have uh, both podcasts, Tofop, which is Charlie and I, and then we have Fofop, which is uh, Charlie and I rotating with other guests. And when I say rotating, normally it was week to week. Uh, Charlie has been doing a lot of the heavy lifting uh, while I've been dealing with the shit shit show that is my life so uh thank you to charlie for doing that at the moment but you can check out those podcasts those podcasts i can't remember even what they're called that's how long this has been you can check out those podcasts at tofop.com will these intros get shorter in the future let's hope so but anyway in the meantime we're back at least for now Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Oh man, it's been a while. It's been, what, 14, 15 months since I've done an episode of this podcast. This is a big special occasion, brand new episode of Philosophy. And of course, this is how the podcast starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? My name is Mandy Nolan. I am a mother of five, lives in Mullumbimby, just down the road, and I'm a comedian. Of, I was actually, someone introduced me the other day and they go, how long have you been doing it? And I went, oh, shit, I think it's 37 years. Oh, are you, you know, serious? Yeah, and you always go, oh, 30. Like, Comedy is the only thing you actually, <laughs> actually go backwards because the longer you're doing it and the less, like, the less good you seem, like you're going, oh, no, that's bad. I'm like 25 years. No, it's about 30. I started at 17. I'm 55. So what's that? That's um, yeah. coming up to kind of big numbers. Wow. I mean, that's really amazing. So let's go back, um, you know, to where it yeah. started. Let's talk about age 17. Where did you first do comedy at age 17? Um, well, I did it in Brisbane. You know how you start in that kind of university review thing? And I was in like <laughs> this feminist review. It wasn't funny, unfortunately. Well, some of it was funny. Yeah. But it was very, it was, it was, it was a really great, I'd broken out, I was in a modelling agency uh-huh. and I remember, <laughs> and I, and it was in a modelling agency at this, because where I come from, which was Joe Bjorki Peterson's area, King Roy is where I was born and being beautiful was an achievement. So I was this tall, yeah. thin girl that suddenly, you know, I was smart, but I'd made it to the modelling agency. Yeah, you were beautiful. You didn't need anything I else. didn't need anything. It's like being a prime breeder. Yeah. It was like, she is good. She is we good We don't need go. triple threats or double threats. Yeah, You're a threat. We it, need a single threat. Exactly. That's all we want. And then I went to, and being at university, and this is 
the problem with educating attractive women is that I, <laughs> I realised, I remember um, understanding, like reading my first feminist text and understanding that everything I'd perceived about the world and myself was a fucking crock of shit. It wasn't, it wasn't who I was. And then suddenly I went, why am I walking in a bikini up and down this long thing? I mean, I'd been standing in a supermarket with a barrel, um, you know, in those horrible things with a key where you've got to put a key in. And I just went, I just, an overnight kind of went, that's it, I can't do that. Became like a feminist, was doing the comedy. And I got booked after my first set. Not because I was good, just because there was no other women doing it. Mm. But I thought I was good. And that's all that mattered. Like, I thought I was good. And looking back, I realised how shit I was. Like, But I had, I just said yes to things. I, I didn't want to be a comic. There was no, con- do you, I don't know when you started, Will, but there was no, this idea of people who were 17 and 18 that want to be comics. Mm. I'm like, it just wasn't a thing you chose to be. You, it just happened to me. Like, for me, it happened I was doing it. And then I went, oh, my God, I think I'm a comedian. So there was no other women doing it then. And I just got, pa- every gig I got paid for, I've had, I've been booed off stage. I've been chased out of rooms. I've been bleeding in the head from a beer can to my head. And I'd come off stage and went, I'd go, oh, yeah, oh, that was all right, I think. <laughs> and I'd just like... I just push on. I'm pretty unflappable like that. Like I don't I don't take anything really personally. Well, I mean, so that timeline, let's just talk yeah. about that for a little bit because you're absolutely right about the fact. So even when I started, which was... What year was that? So I'm, how old am I now? 49 years old. I think yeah. I started when I was 21. So 28 years ago or something like yeah. that. Around that So you of- were like a baby to start as well. Like That's young to get out there and talk about what you think. I mean, it didn't feel young. I felt old <laughs> doing it at that point. You know, like there's people who are 15, yeah. you know, 16. I know actually last night you were involved in a yeah. local class clowns competition up here, which is high school kids who, you know, are thinking about having a career in comedy. And by the way, they're right. There yep. is a career in comedy. It's amazing. There are so many yep. careers in comedy now, not just being the person on stage, but as you know, you know, being the person who judges the comedy, being the person who organises the comedy, being the person who promotes it. Like, I mean, the comedy industry is an industry now that you can have several jobs in and several roles Absolutely. in and make a good living out of. But when I started, it was still running away to join the circus. And you're talking about another, you know, nearly another decade yeah. before that and not just... Like when I was doing it, at least as a country kid, you know, sitting on a farm in East Gippsland, when I was watching the television, I saw people that looked like me that were doing it. Mm. So there was a little part of my head that went, okay, well, I guess they're people who look like me, even though I am not those people. They look like me and I can do it. But what made you think, like, was there someone that was inspirational to you? Was there a role model? Was there someone you thought you were following? Yeah, it was hard to find someone you're right with that, what you can see. Like, I couldn't see it, but I kind of kept, there was something weirdly addictive about this idea. I just love the idea of having nothing. Like, even before the idea of having a (laughs) no carbon footprint, the fact that I had no instrument that you walk on the stage Mm -hmm. and you take them hostage with ideas. Like, armed with nothing more than your imagination. That's what I always say. I know. And I just, to me, it was just like, I just love that. And I've, you know, I'd seen people in bands and see how how fucked lugging is. I went, I'm not doing that. So, I'd moved to, I think at that time, the only person that I'd seen that I, you know, there was Wendy Harmer who I, you know, and Jean Kitson and, you know, women that I really held in huge rebukes. The big gig was like, that was, that was the penultimate and it was funny and it was subversive 
and and I and I loved because during the eighties, finding that place for political commentary and sticking it, you know, to the establishment was was what comedy did. It was yeah. exciting. I remember I loved Whoopi Goldberg as well. And what is that about? It's funny. I ask young comics who they love as comedians, and they always bloody name Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that real parochial thing in us as Australians. I just don't think – I think we have an incredible comedic culture in Australia and I think it shits on a, l- a lot of places or is comparable to – we've got to start celebrating that, but I am ashamed to say I I did love Wobby Goldberg. Well, and back I, then, there again – There's not many women. No, I mean now, yeah. I mean there's even – Australians who are yeah. international superstars. So you could say Hannah Gadsby or you could yeah. say Ronnie Chang if you consider him to, or Jim Jeffries or these people who have like made huge imprints on the world stage. So, of course, but even without that, the best of our best has always been very competitive with the best of anybody's Absolutely. best. You look at the amount of Australians who've gone to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and walked mm. away with the top prize over there. We've always had an incredibly strong comedic culture, but Whoopi Goldberg – I think part of the reason they were Americans in the first place, Americans or Scots or Brits Mm. or whatever, is that we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have podcasts where we could, you know, connect with all these people. Your introduction to comedy was very much whatever was available in a recorded form. And I remember back then, Whoopi Goldberg had an album called Fontaine, Why Am I Straight? Which was a Broadway, a one-person character Broadway show that she'd done, which was partly stand-up, partly, you know, these series of characters. And it was – I remember there was a particular routine about abortion and I'd never heard anybody talk about abortion in the way that she talked about it. Like, I mean, to me, I did a gala in Montreal many years ago now but the Whoopi Goldberg was hosting and I remember just how excited and overwhelmed I was to meet her, not because of – you know, Sister Act or, you know, any of no, those. No, mum was of, the same. Because of this yeah. this album that was so pivotal to me. And that was the album that inspired me yeah. because what I saw in her work was um, insight and compassion and, and stories that were being told that didn't exist in the mainstream and told with, I thought, enormous humour but enormous compassion. So I just, I loved it. It's funny, we're both from the country and both have little Whoopi Goldberg moments. So I fought to get, I was in Canberra. I'd moved to Canberra by that stage. I was about 20, I think, or 21 maybe. And what had taken you to Canberra? A bad relationship, Uh of course. I was, I was just drifting. Camera's number one tourism yeah, I know. <laughs> you got to get there. It was a bad relationship. But I'd kind of um, teamed up with this awesome woman who was this fierce Maori woman who I sort of walked into a room once and went, she's fabulous and terrifying. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, she looked at me and went, ugh. I hate, like, she hated, like, I was this pretty girl and she didn't like, and I I made it my mission to befriend, I I wore her down. So we started doing (laughs) a bit of a two-hander of comedy stuff. And so when Whoopi Goldberg came to town, it was when they still had that thing where you had to have an Australian Australian support support. at. So we just went to the touring agent and just said, we're it. Mm. And so this was – so we got the support out, got the support out, which looks – whenever I put – I put have support, I've supported like Eartha Kit, which was yeah. fucking amazing. Like uh. that was like one of my high moments mm. just to share a stage with Eartha Kit. But that was a good show. But supporting Whoopi Goldberg, which sounds good, so people always go, wow. Yeah. But <laughs> the, the actual criteria was we weren't allowed to speak. Uh, what? <laughs> this was the criteria. We weren't allowed to speak or go on the stage. So we pretty well had to roam. You know that awful thing that you do where you roam? No. Yeah, we had to roam. Yeah. So we pretty well dressed like homeless women. 
who are mute. <laughs> and but all we did, all we wanted to, was to sit in a room with Whoopi afterwards yeah. and talk to her. Which did you is, get to do that? Yeah, we did. Okay, well that's okay. So was that, you were allowed to talk then. She yeah, didn't we, say, yeah, you can sit here, but you're not allowed to say anything. <laughs> so we were basically looked like we were begging through the crowd, but uh-huh. that was the support act, and we went, "I don't care, we'll do whatever it takes." Um, so yeah, that was that was a moment, and I'd say that was that was kind of me reaching out to someone whose work I, I mm. admired, and it was it was that album, and it was it was that work she'd done, which maybe it actually made me do character comedy a bit, which was I'm so I'm, I'm a bit ashamed to say I went on one of those shows like Have a Go show, mm-hmm. and I won a few of them, and I fucking hope that those recordings are dead. <laughs> I hate character comedy. Like, it better be good. Would there be anything that wouldn't hold up, like, with your current, like, world oh, yeah. and political views, oh, yeah. do you think? Oh, yeah. Look, it was a bit feminist. Uh-huh. I yeah. remember. And then I started going down for the Have a Go show because I picked up another boyfriend down there. And the only way and I was living by that stage, I think I'd gone back to Brisbane. And I'd just keep going on the show so they'd fly me down. And I do remember I'd taken heaps of acid the night before. <laughs> <laughs> So I front up and they're doing a punk show and it's that awful thing that really straight people, they dress me up as a punk and I go on and I just get booed off because uh, I am tripping balls. Uh, like I am, that's kind of, I don't, I went, I don't know. I'd love to see that bit because I was fucked. Like it didn't, I didn't even care that I was funny. I just came to Sydney for a route and a free, for, a free, you know, and then I flew home. So that was it. So that was that was the early part. But I, I don't know where those videos are. I'm I'm hoping they've been destroyed in a terrible fire. I mean, I think most things from any of those eras mm. don't exist anymore. Like, yeah, I have I still run into people, and it's thirty years since you know Adam and I did the Triple J Breakfast Show now, and I still run into people who are like are just like, oh, I love that show. I remember this thing, and all I can think is, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> that people can't go back to check their memories because if you, you yeah you wouldn't even know like it's what you're saying then. Yeah. I was having this conversation with someone today, going, you know, because we've changed so much. People always go to me. I don't know whether they ask you that question because it's my most unfavorite question they ask. Has political correctness ruined comedy? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, do you mean when I sit backstage? And listen, I don't get to listen to rape jokes. Do you mean that? Do you mean it's ruined it for me that I don't sit on my own with no other women and have some guy trying to fucking crack on to me? Yeah, it's fucking ruined that shit. Like you're going, it's made it better. I don't know. I'm like going, there's so many more diverse, interesting people. Every comic that's on that bill has to be good at what they do. Like it's, I just feel like it's raised the bar, not, you know, it certainly hasn't. For me, it's a much more inclusive place and so I go, you know. Well, the, tr- the truth of it is that it hasn't ruined anything for anyone. <laughs> no. It's generally, like if you look at the world in a realistic yeah. sense, because you're absolutely right, it is the absolute fascination, particularly doing media for the current tour. What? Every single person Every asks question. you, must be hard these days to say what you like on stage. I was like... In 30 years nearly of doing this, I've never felt like it was hard. I can talk about whatever I want to talk about on stage. It is just the way that you talk about it. But even the people you're talking about, even the ones that you're saying, you're all the cancelled people, they're all playing fucking stadiums around the the world. They're still going. They're they're all (laughs) doing very well. In fact, they're doing probably better than the people who don't say those things because there's still a huge inbuilt audience for people who want to hear 
those things said in that way. I remember when Dave Chappelle, yeah. you know, was doing his whole bit about, you know, political correctness and you can't say anything on Saturday Night Live. And people were asking me, like, oh, it must be tough, this environment. He said, I said, he said it on fucking Saturday Night Live. I know, Live. he's doing all right. And he got paid $100 million <laughs> to make a bunch of Netflix specials where he complains about it all. He's fine. Yeah, like, he's doing fine. And that that's it. You kind of go, you know, it's that weird, you know, that thing of like, you know, I just hate the way the ultra-rights co-opted things. Like, I get called a social justice mm. warrior, like it's yep. a terrible thing. And mm. I went, no, that's a good thing. You're like, like literally, that's my job description. That's what I love doing. Yeah. I am an SJW. Yeah. Sounds a bit like a Jehovah Witness, but, you know, anyway. But it's interesting having started, like, way back. But I imagine the stuff I've done, which I probably wouldn't choose to say in that way. But yeah. I don't think it's probably the same for you. I've never, I've never had the values that I would put the boot into someone in a way that, like, I don't think is that much of a shift. I mean, I, I can't, I, I never really did any accent comedy. I don't have a whole past of Indian accents. I must, <laughs> I must admit, I was like, about the first 10 years of my career, I was so jealous of anyone who could do an accent. Uh, me I too. can't do accents at me all. Either. I was like, I wish I had that superpower. And in the last 10 years, I've been like, so like, glad I never did accents. <laughs> That's so funny because I used to, do, you know how people used to get, so if you could do an accent, yeah. everyone's like, oh, he's amazing. Yeah. Listen to those accents. He does so many accents. And now, you you're just fully uh, like, that's like, I can't believe they're still doing that accent. And you're going. Yeah, you're down to three acceptable accents now. You can still probably get away with like mm. American, South African. And- yeah, that's about it. That is it. That is a pretty small amount of accents. And you kind of go, no. Nah. It's kind of funny. Someone like Akmal's only been doing one accent. Which is that it's Akmal's one voice. Yeah. So, you know that one voice he does for every act yeah. out? I love it. I went, that's the Akmal voice. Slightly boganish, but Akmal's version. I think we all have our act out voice that we use when, our, you know, for the comedy person, the antagonist. Mm. I'm not quite sure who they are, but it feels like it's safe. It feels like it isn't any marginalized mm. group. It isn't anyone. Not it's really. Everyone. It's the every. It's the every person. I've given you a bit of a blank canvas that you yeah. can paint your own stuff yeah. onto. It's and the every fuckwit. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not a fuckwit. Whoever you're picturing right now, this is the particular fuckwit I'm yeah, talking that's it. about. That's the fuckwit. I mean, it was interesting. Like I wrote a little bit about like you know moving up here during the pandemic and and the local community and what that was like during that time. Um, you know, both in my book and in my show. And I very much was careful about – I didn't want anyone to ever be able to identify that that was them in particular that yeah. I was talking about. So every single story, I really made a sincere effort that I was combining, say, at least three different characters or stories into this one thing so that even though all the things were true, like, you know, all the things that yeah. happened or the things that I'd heard or whatever, none of them could be directly identified to one person. Exactly, because you don't want to hurt someone. No, and, and it, there's no need for it. Because yeah. as you said, it's much better that that person is generic fuckwit than they are one particular fuckwit. That somebody goes, hang on, I'm that fuckwit. And you're like, no, 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 no. This is a collection of fuckwits that I've combined into one big generic fuckwit. I know. And they're everywhere. Mm. And that that's the joy of it. That is. The, and you don't, yeah, I had that thing where because you can't. And, but what happens is people think it is them. Mm. And they go, that was me, yeah. wasn't it? When you go, there's some great moments. Do you, do you trawl the local Facebook page? Because, oh, my God, there's some beauties. The guy that put up about, what was this? Anyone got a, um, got a, someone's been putting trackers in the meat at Woolworths. 
Does anyone got a cleansing diet to know how to get the tracker? I mean, that is the best way to get oh rid God. of your tracker. How can yeah, I know, <laughs> like stop eating meat from Woolworths. Well, I was during the floods in particular. So I don't spend a lot. I'm off all social media, yeah. but during the floods, obviously those community groups are really handy in knowing what roads were open, yeah. who needed help, where you could drop off food, any of these things that we were worried about at the time. And so I was spending a lot of time reading them. <laughs> and then after a while, I was like, I have to stop reading these because there is the, my neighbour. I was having a cup of coffee with my neighbour who was at your show the other night and she was telling me there'd been a post about chemtrails. On, and she said it was oh, like, yeah. there was 1,500 comments under this chemtrails thing and she was running me through some of the highlights. And I was like, this is the best way to do it. I don't need to read these things myself. I'll pop around for a coffee and you can give me the Edited highlights. I like that's that's like vicarious trauma, isn't yeah. it? Like you don't have to actually experience it. I knew I flew home that morning. We'd just done the chemtrail spray. <laughs> no, I flew in from Sydney that morning, and when we arrived, I saw these two plumes of white, and I went, "Oh fuck!" Here we go. no, here we go. It's going to be on. Everyone's going to be titchy as fuck. Like you're going. I always, though, um, which I'm sure you totally get, I just love the confidence of a community that thinks we're <laughs> that we're worth spraying. Oh yeah, like it's right? just beautiful. And like- that, but also <laughs> that, like, because something like chemtrails isn't new. Yeah, I know. So if it were something that was effective, like. <laughs> Why hasn't it worked? And why (laughs) aren't they spraying Sydney? Why do you still know about it? You know, like why are they still just testing it up here? It doesn't really make any sense. Sometimes there's this guy. He's this old dude, and he ran in the last federal election in the in the um in the Senate, and he's running in the state election here now. And he he came to me, and he goes. He goes, introduces himself, says his name, and he goes, I worked in bio warfare for 30 years. And you go, you fucking did not. Like, you so did not work in bio warfare. No. No. No, you didn't. I don't think you did. But by all, and, you know, and he'd done everything. He's an expert. It was Mm. sometimes, but I went home just, I just loved that conversation I had. I just went. Fuck, that was an awesome conversation. Insane, but <laughs> really amusing. Part of what I've said to people constantly is that because people seem to think, and this I think this is mm. you and I share this, which is that you can have a conversation with somebody about what they believe without you having to believe it. Like, Absolutely. You can talk to someone about how they see the world or, I mean, we'll get to you and politics and, you know, your relationship with, like, organised politics now, but there must be a lot of occasions through that prism where the whole point is that you're having a conversation with somebody who doesn't necessarily align with the set of values that you're putting forward, but you're trying to find a connection point, you're trying to understand what their worldview is, what it is that motivates them, you know, what it is that, you know, their decision-making process yeah. is based around. Absolutely, because there's this powerful thing, Will, it's called listening. Mm. I've <laughs> like, heard of it. Imagine that, and that's what it is, you know, but that's what it is in the conversation yeah. when you can actually listen to what someone else has to say without having to be impacted by their conversation, having to change them just to listen. I love it. And I actually found, it was funny, when I stopped drinking, I actually went, I was kind of went, oh, fuck, my listening has improved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went, wow, it's an amazing. I went, I, like, you never go out when you're drinking and go and have a big night on the listen. Like, you don't go, fuck, I went out and listened to it. You just dominate conversations. I mean, and that's exactly right. As soon as you stop drinking, it is like you do go out and have a big night on the listening. Yeah, yeah. And what you realize is (laughs) that you don't actually need to build on conversations. I think when you drink, 
there is something within us that if you're telling me a story about, hey, the time that I met this person, mm. my immediate reaction is, well, I've got a great story about the time that I met someone other and that's what I'm going to put in next. Yeah. Whereas when you're not drinking, your next question is normally another question about that person's story. I know. You, you, like, you, you tease it apart. You're not looking for when is the next opportunity for me to build on this, but you're like, oh, I might be able to just talk to that person more it's about powerful. their experience. It is powerful. We could all be Richard yeah. Feidler. Uh, <laughs> world's best fucking listener. I just think, fuck, how did he do that? Because, yeah. you know what, he didn't want to implant himself in the story. Mm. And I actually have learned a lot. And I am I have to admit, I think I've been really guilty in my life of doing that, of, of stopping listening to people because I'm so busy trying to find that time to slam my bit in. Yeah. And I think it's what we do as comedians. And I feel like, I feel a bit like the old bull or the old cow that goes, I, I know how to do that. Yeah. Let's just sit back on this and see what happens. And I find it really exciting because you learn things and you develop relationships with people you would never have developed a relationship with before. I think it's amazing. I love it. And, you know, it's it never stops. And opportunities weirdly open up it with people to talk, to reach them. I just love reaching unreachable people. Like, I don't know why. I find it, I just want to fucking make them like me. I'm like, I'm going to fucking get you. Do you get that? I'm like, I'm going to fucking get you. I can see you fucking hate my guts, but I will fucking get you. Then it's it's on. Like I'm, I, I know. I don't think I do have I that. that. In fact, I think that I have... A little bit of the opposite of that, which is <laughs> that I don't really have a like drive for to win anybody over. Right. I think sometimes that's the like. Well, that's your appeal, mm. you know, because you don't you you like that's actually that's a powerful thing to have. I just need to be loved, you know, by everyone. I'm like a dog, and I'll get you, you know. I'll stand outside your door scratching. <laughs> I will bark for chicken. I'm more the person who spends an hour and a half on stage telling people to leave me alone. And you know what that happens? The opposite happens. Then they're like going, oh, fucking will. Can we? Yeah, then people are, are, are attracted to that. But Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question, yeah. which is the vague premise of this podcast. And seeing this is the... Yeah. I'm just looking at the time as well. Oh, yeah, we so, better get on to this thing. Yeah, so seeing this is the vague premise of this right. podcast and seeing this is my first proper one back, I need to, you know, for the people who are listening, I need to at least sure. you know, have some of the original structure involved, which is the, the opening question that I tend to ask people is whether you have a life philosophy of any kind and it can be in regard to anything it can be in regard to and it can be more than one thing but it could be in regard to anything you choose life love work politics i don't mind but is there some sort of and we've already in this first 20 yeah. minutes touched on a whole bunch of things but is there anything in particular that you could you know put into a sentence to answer that question uh, yeah absolutely my i think my core belief is that if you are witness to something mm -hmm it is your responsibility to step into the frame. Like I have this absolute, you need to step in, not step out. And too many people fucking step out. And by stepping in, I mean, like I thought of writing for politics, for instance, like I've always been really politicised. I've always kind of sat on the margins as a comic or as an activist in my community and yelled at people in the inside going, change this, do this, stop fucking with the forest, protect the koalas, stop mining Colin Gap, blah, blah. And then I went, well, what happens if you get inside? Uh -huh. And you know that thing when you <laughs> – I used to love that thing when you um, – I used to go looking at rental properties. And you know when you'd go – 
and have a look. And you'd go with you. you used to get the key. You didn't have to go with a group of people. Yeah. And then you'd you'd leave a, a window open, and you'd all go back in the night and have a party. Mm. Like I know. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say all go back in the night to see if there's any other different noises. No, or, like so you, go, you break high, in basically you and have a party. You have, yeah, a, have party. a party, right. and you'd do that. So I kind of see. I love how you said that as if that's a thing everybody does. I thought does. everyone did it. You know, everybody one. breaks into people's well, houses and has parties. Well, it, was, it was just a rental and you occasionally <laughs> would go in and have a party. But yeah. and it was that whole idea of getting in on the inside, right? So you get inside to open the windows to let people from the outside in. Yeah. That's how you make systemic change. So I have this incredibly overwhelming positive belief that the system's fucked, that it only um, it's it's it benefits so few. And part of part of being a beneficiary is to keep the propaganda going that that this is the only system you can imagine. The fact that people can imagine the end of the world with more clarity than they can the end of capitalism just shows you how much they've fucking fallen for the Kool-Aid. Um, they even buy their own Kool-Aid making kits at home so they can make Kool-Aid in the house. <laughs> I mean, it's and – I, and I think actually realising that change can happen really quickly and and I actually still absolutely believe in our capacity to make – very quick, very lasting and um, life-changing um, impact in the way we, we the way we live and the way other people live. I can't I find knowing that um, you know so much injustice everywhere and to not do anything about it, to not trying to step into that. And it's about my mother of five kids like you know you don't have five <laughs> I feel pretty bad if I have five kids and I go, oh well, it's fucked, sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry well, about the whole the thing. The truth is that it's only been – I mean, of course, all, yeah. all of human history, people will tell you there's been like challenges and mm. tough things in all of human history. But um, there is a dude called – I think his name is Tim Pool. Um, I, look, I'm not a – like, d please don't take this anyone listening that I'm a huge subscriber to everything he says because he says a whole bunch of things yeah. that I am not interested in anyway or he jumps to a whole bunch of conclusions that I don't necessarily support from. But his research and his work is really – you know, really good. And if you look at it on the base level and don't necessarily leap to the same conclusions as him, I think it can be really interesting to – he's one of those people that, you know, when you try to engage with people who don't have the same worldview as you but who are at least arguing it from a rational place. Like, you know, it makes sense and you yeah. can go, okay, I get why you – Yeah, it's persuasive and you're going, well, well, I kind of get it. So he talks about the idea of like if human – the history of humankind was a book – that the last thousand years or so is only the last third of the last page of that book. You know, that like ah, as in like a nice we, image. So of all that we have been and done and the way things have changed, you know, the things that we think can't change, like capitalism. Capitalism's only been a couple of paragraphs in the story of yeah, humanity. Yeah, it's tiny, but it's we're we're so hooked in. Yeah. And if you brought in any system of anything and you, and it has some positive net benefit to, you know, your company or your organisation or your family or whatever it might be. But there also is a whole bunch of negative side effects of this thing that you just hadn't considered. If they put you on a medication that stopped your hips from hurting but suddenly, mm. like, your, your eyes got red and itchy all the time, you'd be like, well, maybe we need to look at another medication. But 
you know, capitalism is just like, well, you just got to live with sore eyes. Yeah, they kind of go, people, that's it. We've got some good eye drops for rich people. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. They'll be able to afford the eye drops to stop your eyes from hurting. But yeah. the rest of you are just going to have itchy eyes because this is the system. And you go, how good are itchy eyes? Yeah, and the people with the itchy eyes will vote to keep the system going for the people whose eyes are really good. Because one day they dream that they might be the person who can afford the how good stuff is that, that, that makes they'll you have the good eyes. eyes from, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I found that. Yeah, it's that sort of – and it is a sense, isn't it? It's, you know, we've swallowed the American dream, like, you know, in the sense that's become, you know, mm. that that philosophy of, mm. you know, that you might win the lotto or that you might suddenly be the person who's climbed to the top of the pile, mm. um, gets your stuff made in China by children and you can live without the sense of consequence. I remember sitting through – it's actually interesting. I was um, went to – Actually, I know. I think I was interviewing actually for a writers' festival for Peter Singer, who's the yeah. philosopher, and it was the book. He'd... Moral philosopher is that what he is? He's a, a, yeah, he, well, he is ethical, a philosopher, is an, an ethical, ethical yeah. philosopher, and he really pushes people. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting at a writers' festival. You couldn't get a whiter, more <laughs> kind of like, and everyone, in a sense, I guess. Um, People feel like they're switched on yes. and, and they're, they're probably philanthropists mm. and there's also, you know. It, supporting the arts, supporting challenging the, arts, the ideas. Exactly. Open-minded. And he'd written this book and I had to interview him for it and I just watched this room just sit there and they struggled because it's called The Life You Can Save. Yeah. And his thesis was that, well, if you saw someone fall over in the street, would you help them? And they mm. go, yep. Yep, you would. Of course you would. Of course you would. How could you walk past someone? And then went through, you know, talking about the you know unequal distribution of world wealth, of world, you know, of wealth and if and that whole thing then if if people live in poverty then then ethically how 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 do you walk past that like how do so therefore by your own definition you are unethical so he pushes and he had the whole room because we do like and I we mean, do it is that I mean that's it is a version of that old philosophy which is the standard that you walk by is the standard that you accept mm. right and the truth of it is that we do like I do I do like, all the time because sometimes. What you're up against, like, you know, as in like, you know, so during the thing that I always say is we talk about the idea that, yeah, there's so much homelessness in this area Mm. in particular. There's a lot of homelessness in the cities now. It's much more evident than it ever was. Firstly, we can solve homelessness. We did it a lot during the pandemic because there was a reason for the rest of the society, particularly in the big cities, yeah. to get people off the streets. Suddenly they like found this. all these places Bang. that they could yeah. get people off the streets. So yeah. so we can do it. It's just whether we have the motivation to do it or not, whether we choose to do it. Whether we have the will. <laughs> and the problem <laughs> is that after a while, the point was when there was one homeless person who was outside my hotel in Melbourne like during the comedy festival, of course I'd stop every day and give him some money and have a chat and whatever. Mm. When there's 30, when there's 40, when there's 60 on your walk, after a while you walk past yeah. because you have, like, you've been almost put in a position by society where you have no other – it's often the criticism, and I'm sure you, you, you yeah. get this all the time when you're talking about these issues, which is the idea of, well – how can these young kids protest against the climate when they've all got phones or they've all got, you know, whatever. You, the idea that you you live in the world. We all live in the world yep. that has been created around us. Like if the only point you can come from to say these things aren't right is to completely not use any of the things that make a society operate, then that is just a completely unfair way to – of course the prevailing system is always going to prevail if you yeah. say you can't take part in the system if you want to change the system. <laughs> 
Well, you can't, and you can't just, you can't use that to tap out, no. to go, oh, you can't do that. Like, I mean, I've been stopping coal and gas and doing that, mm. driving around in my diesel Jeep. I had to fill up yeah. at night going, <laughs> going, my God, that's the car that I meant. Like, yeah. we're all full of hypocrisy and we're all full of this, yeah. you know, there's so much you can't change, but you, you are constantly confronted with small measures of where you can actually impact and decisions that you make that are meaningful. You know that even in your own personal life, you know that, that moment where you where something clocks across your radar and you can't unsee it and you can't and you go, and often I'll go, fuck, I haven't got time mm-hmm. to have to take this on, yep. but I can't not. Mm-hmm. Now I have to do this. Like, and, it, and that's the part of me, then I'll step up and do it. But it's not like you step in every time going, I can't wait to donate and spend the next 60 hours of my life, you know, getting this happening. I remember happening once where this woman turned up in town here, right, and I don't know how, someone had picked her up hitching. She was a young woman from Adelaide who was having an, a complete mental breakdown. For some reason, she knew my name. She ended up at the police station. She'd lost everything. She was having a psychotic meltdown. She, she, the, the police Googled my name. They, she managed to call me. And when I don't know who she was, it was Splendor Weekend. I thought it was just another person trying to get free com. And then part of me went, this is a young woman. I think she's, I don't know who she is. I think she's not okay. I better, and it wasn't convenient because I had to do something that afternoon. So then I had to go to the police station and pick her up. And this went on for, by the time her, she ended up getting sectioned that night. I sat with her. It was probably 12 hours. I didn't, and I had to, I took her home. I, I, I showered her. I tried to feed her. I could tell she needed hospitalization. Eventually, and she left. I, I went to see her about two weeks later. I'd organised, found her mother, found her car in Adelaide. I put all the pieces together, mm-hmm. but that took so much time. And I, someone said, oh, you're an angel. I went, I'm not actually an angel at all. That is not, I didn't want to do it. Like I didn't actually go. I wasn't looking for that, but I went, if I don't do that, who's going to do it? Like it's fallen, it's fallen in my mm-hmm. way. I have to do it. And that's, I think actually realising that, as flawed and fucked up as you are, you can still make do something meaningful. You don't have to be a great person to do something great. Like you actually can and affect change. So that's kind of my core philosophy, I think, is, you know, it's, you know, I'm not about, no one's holier than, than thou. Like we, we do what we can and we push for, you know, better conditions. I, I feel, you know, I, I kind of, and I don't always, like it does take up a lot of time though. Like if you are trying to, um, you know, sometimes it's really sometimes. Well, how do you balance that? So this is like <sighs> then we get to this place where you're like, how much yeah. of yourself are you giving to the world, Too and much. how much of yourself are you giving to yourself, yeah. or to the people around you in your life who are part of your crew and your gang? You know, your family. Mm. You talk about your kids, but like you know, there's friends and loved ones and people who rely on you that you do know and that you do already have responsibilities yeah. with. So how do you balance those things? Is that a challenge? Yeah, because they pay. Mm. They pay because I'm definitely not as available to them as they probably like me to be, you know, and that is the cost sometimes 
of you know, and I you know, and you do <laughs> something like balancing all the guilt of <laughs> of doing that, of going, yeah, I, I don't I don't think I, I'm not good at saying no to things that I feel passionate about. Uh, like I kind of want to be there, but I want to do all the things. I kind of give it a crack every now and then. I break myself, like literally, I'll end up in hospital. Like I have no, I don't know if you have. I have that thing where I. I'm not really good at checking in at my limit. So I can work 16 hours a day for three years mm. every day. And then one day I'll wake up and I'll go, <laughs> I'm fucked. <laughs> but there was nothing in, I didn't pick yeah. any signs up along the way. Yeah. So I have to be aware of that. Yeah, that that's I, 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 over the last 20 years of my professional mm. work life, I've had probably only about three or four like blow ups, you know, yeah. some moment where I've like cracked it with like a studio audience yeah. at Gruen or whatever. And on each one of those occasions, like it, it's been one of those things where I'm like, Oh, where did that come from? And everybody else in my life is like, yeah, we've been waiting for that. I know, I <laughs> that's don't been, see it either. That's been, that we've, we've all been watching this coming for a couple of years. I ended up in a COVID ward at about mid last year and I didn't have COVID. I I I pretty well just had really bad vertigo, but right. they misdiagnosed me. Mm-hmm. So and was after running for the election. I was mentally like I was I I it really I I thought I'd worked hard. I worked harder than I'd ever worked. And then somehow I'm in Sydney. I went down for a bunch of gigs. I end up the vertigo wipes me out. They somehow think I can barely communicate because I'm so sick. I end up in a COVID ward at one of the Sydney hospitals with three other people, all the plasticky ones. One of the men in front of me dies. Like he was fuck, and I went, yeah. fuck, I'm in the worst place in Australia. I went, fuck, maybe I need to ch- slow down. Like, mm, yeah. <laughs> then I'm like saying to the doctors, excuse me, I don't think I've got COVID. And like, yeah, like, yeah, sure, sure, going, sure. Yeah, whatever, Mullen lady. have got COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, where are you from? Mullumbimby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure you doesn't even exist, right? <laughs> yeah, and eventually they tested me and they came back and they went, you yeah. don't have COVID. No. And I went, yeah, I know, you've put me in here. And they went, you've probably got it yeah. now. I didn't end up getting it. Really at no. all? I'd had it once before and I'm vaccinated, so I didn't get it from that. But that was a really fun – and I went, fuck, that was not a good moment in my, in my life. Um, okay, so like, you mentioned politics and I'm conscious about the yeah. fact that like we have like a bit of a, a – Sure. A, a hard out today. So I think it's a good time to talk about that, you know, uh, because – when did you go from, uh, you know, somebody who was an activist in the community? Someone like, I mean, if you, coming to this part of the world as I've been doing now for what twenty one years, and I think I probably met you the first or second time yeah. that I ever came up here, and you've always been such a huge. You were a huge presence in the community up here back then. Like everybody, if I told people I was a comedian, everybody said, "Do you know Mandy Nolan?" You know, you were obviously the person who, whenever there was something oh, to do around here, you were the person. There was doing a rally, that. Will. I was there. And <laughs> most of the rallies back then, I was going through. I was going through all this stuff I've been doing over twenty years, and I went, "Fuck!" Every rally we did was in the nude. I was like, we've had a meeting and someone would go, should we do it in the nude? And they go, all moved, yes, we do this one in the nude. Like every rally, nude, 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 which is pretty fucking funny anyway. So I did, I came out of a history of what seems like nude activism Mm. and I'm not like a nudist, but it was always nude. The Greens asked me to run at one point and I said, look, I'm busy, I'm enjoying my life, no. And then they came back and they, and I said, I said, maybe next time. 
And then they said, there may not be a next time. And I went, fuck, you guys are so passive aggressive. That is a really intense response. <laughs> yeah, well, did, they, did they mean there may not be a next time in that somebody else might take the position well, or there may not be a next time in that the world is going so badly I think that's the what they meant. I think they meant like the climate change. And I went, I went oh, my God, right. I can't be all there is between me and, you know, stopping all the it's column guns. Yeah, pressure. I went, that's a bit heavy. Yeah. Anyway. And then I went back into my community and I was launching a book and I, I've, I've written around, um, I guess, the housing crisis in this region mm-hmm. um, because it has a lot to do with, you know, uh, being in a tourist area and having an unregulated system that hasn't fared well for a lot of people. I was talking about that as I was at a book launch and someone in the, in the audience goes, oh, you talk about stuff all the time. Why don't you actually do something? Why don't you do something like, why don't you run for politics or something so we've got someone to vote for? And... And it was kind of, I went, oh, yeah, probably should. I went, oh, okay, yeah, all right, I'll do it. And that's, you know what was different was it wasn't, it was someone from the community Mm. kind of called me out. Yeah. It wasn't like someone from, like, because let's be honest, Mm. if you're talking about power structures, like if if somebody from an organised political party comes and approaches you, that is the... Power elite, even if it's the yeah. Greens, like yeah. you know, it still is. You're being, yeah, you're it being is. You're being up. tapped on the shoulder. Yeah. Hey, local celebrity activist person, like yeah. we're going to tap you on the shoulder to be our representative. Whereas, like, if it's someone at something that you are passionate about, saying we need a voice and we want to vote for someone, but why aren't you running? Then that is a different perspective. It was totally course. different, and I kind of went, yeah, okay, I get it, and it completely changed. It did scare me. Like I went, oh fuck, because you, you know. You have to be a small target in politics, yep. and I went, "Oh fuck, I am a big target." Like, I've got. I've got- <laughs> I mean, how do you? What, I mean, let me talk to you about that for a minute, because you, as someone who has, like you said, lived your life proudly and loudly and done so many different things, yeah. including what I've heard is some very dodgy character comedy that might exist somewhere. <laughs> like, how, how, how worried are you about? Like, I mean, how is there parts of your life? that you were worried about what if they come and attack me you know, through this or what if this is something totally. that gets more publicly exposed because of me signing up to this? Oh, yeah. And uh, there was heaps of that. And I did get the Australian rang me but I was about halfway through the campaign and they had this video I'd done from 2011 and they had a quote. They said, you, there's a quote you talking about Hitler. And I went, mm. what? And I'm like, I don't, I've never done anything about Hitler. Yeah. And it's some video blogs I used to do. And it was me talking about sociopathy and dickhead says, you know, Hitler was a sociopath, you know, but Hitler had fun Um, and I go off on some other. And it was, you know what, it was, Uh you know, it wasn't anti-Semitic and it's, but you could just take that one thing. It was just not funny nor interesting. I went, oh, no, everyone's going to go looking for this terrible thing. (laughs) So I went, I'm fucked, you know, you know, and I went, I was Uh waiting, you know, ended up on the second page and of the Australian and the morning waiting for it to hit and then get completely smashed is I pick up my phone and look at my news feed and it just says Shane Warne dies. And I went, fuck yes. <laughs> like Warney wiped out the whole news cycle for a week and that story just died. So I was saved. Like I went, the king of spin saved me. So it was, um, I was really lucky. Like, I felt really lucky about that. That There were a few, oh my God, I had this other weird, this is this weird moment that came up. You don't, because they always say that what's going to get you, you've already done. Mm. You know, so it makes you, if you've ever had the fear, it's like you live with that sense all the time. And I'm not ashamed of who I am or what I've done. I'm pretty upfront. So years ago. Also, by the way, it, it's a stupid way to look at the world. Because yeah. 
people get things wrong and people change. Like we're t- we're speaking the day before the New South Wales election. Like the New South Wales Premier at the moment is a guy called uh, Dom Perrottet. At his twenty first, he went dressed as a Nazi. Now that's a bad move. Even then, like by twenty one, you should know that the Nazis yeah, are bad exactly. people and you shouldn't. But also, it was twenty years ago, and in his actions. He seems to be a person who's actually he's banned Nazi salutes. He's like been good to the Jewish community. Like, yeah, if we don't give people the opportunity to look, he's terrible on a whole bunch of things. This is not a you know, yeah, spirited exactly. defense of the guy who's probably not no. even a premier by the time people hear this. But I do think that we have to allow in our society the idea that people have done fucked up things in their past and that they can still be public figures. It's how they have reconciled their previous behavior. I mean, oh, there are some things absolutely, that are, yeah. And I'd had this, <laughs> this was the funniest thing. Years ago, I was in a bar, you know, in, in around here. Mm-hmm. And after a gig, I was probably, it was before I had kids, I was in my m- mid-20s and I was having a whiskey because I was a little bit, you know, kind of loved the Lenny Brucey whiskey. Dr- I was a bit drunk. And this really gorgeous woman comes up and she sits next to me and her hand's on my leg and she goes, would you like to go home? You know, and I went, fuck, I'd love to go home. Because um, I didn't know how I was getting home, but I didn't realise. <laughs> <laughs> She was, she was going to take me home. And I went, all right, I'll go home. Um, and so this is, this is, I have to give you this backstory so yeah. this makes sense. So I go home with her and I get home and she's got a husband. Uh, and I went, oh, oh. okay, I didn't realise this was happening. And she goes, oh, no, 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 he's staying on the couch. I went, oh, <laughs> who is the lady boss? Okay, we're going on with her. So I go up to what is ostensibly his marital bedroom without him. Was he on the couch? And then we go up there and, you know, and I think because she's taken me there that, that she's going to do all the work, but mm. she doesn't. Like she clearly, she takes the pillow. I have to do it. I have to do all the things. Like I do everything. I'm there. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I hadn't even done, like I was going, I was doing, yeah. it's very hard work. Improvising. Yeah, she was gorgeous. But yeah. I had to, I have to admit, I didn't get any pillow time. Like <laughs> I, went and I basically became heterosexual because I fucking love the pillow. Like she just took the pillow. So I had a big night. I was exhausted. <laughs> you might, you, when, when you went down by the husband, on the couch, she just shoot him a look of like. I went, yeah, oh, I okay, know. mate, I get it now. Well, then because we like, go- I get it why you're so happy to be on I the know, couch he's tonight. Loving the couch, she's gone. Yes, <laughs> he knows what goes on. During the there. pillow time, thank <laughs> you. <That's> true. <laughs> well, he was, he was loving, and then the next day I go down, uh, and he's on the couch, yeah. and he, she goes, she makes him drive me home, mm. right. In his air conditioning van, which is something about that was weird and we didn't speak. And I just remember sitting there, just we're driving home and he goes, I just go, your wife's hot. And then he just turns to me and all he says is, yeah, that's why I've got an air conditioning business. <laughs> just keep, then he drives like, weird moment, gone. You know how those moments are gone and you never think about them yeah. again, it's all gone. Uh-huh. Anyway, I'm running for the Greens, yeah. so I'm out there doing the meet and greets, meeting people in the community. I mean, one of the areas in the electorate that's hardest mm-hmm. to get through. And there's a few hundred people at this function. It's up north a bit. And I go in there and this, this guy, I'm at the bar to get a drink and this guy goes, Mandy Nolan? And I went, yes, actually, how are you? And I put my hand out to shake his hand. He goes, you fucked my wife. And I went, <laughs> oh. And I did go, I went, I did actually. You know when the whole room just kind of turns in on you and you go, fuck, this is not what you're expecting. And I went, yes, I did. And I went, she was awesome, but it was a lot of work. And he goes, yep, I owe you a beer. <laughs> like that that happened. That was one of those. I've actually oh, turned that into a story I use on stage now. And I actually thought, I, sh- I thought... And it makes it hard when you do comedy because you think I shouldn't use that story because using that story makes me vulnerable because 
um, politicians don't tell these kind of stories about themselves. And then I'm like, oh, who cares? Like, this is who I am. I'm authentic. I'm, it, you know, I've been telling those kind of, and it was a fun, you know, it, it, the punchline turned up 30 years later. How can you not tell that story as a comedian? You're going like, I have to tell it now. Also, I would argue the opposite anyway, yeah. in that I think that, like, if there is any vulnerability around a story like that, mm. then the vulnerability is absolutely dismantled by the fact that you're the one telling the story. Yeah, exactly. And again, this person who was at this rally for something who said, well, why don't you run? They weren't saying, why don't you become like the people who are already there? They were saying, yeah. why don't you run? Because we know who you are, yeah, what's exactly. and all. And that's what we actually want in there. I love the idea though, <laughs> that, I mean, this is the power of comedy in a way, is that, so I, I remember when I was in the States, I did this, uh, Doug Benson has a show called Getting Doug With High. And the yeah. premise is, much like the Graham Norton show with alcohol, this one is with pot. And so they, you go in <laughs> and it's a talk show, but you continue to smoke pot through the talk show. That's a great and more talk and more, show. Yeah, more and more That's pot. Funny. And it gets, by the end of it, I mean, like Jack Black went on it and had a complete meltdown, got too stoned. Fuck, and really? Completely far. Wow. I mean, it's all online. People can, can yeah, watch it. Listen, yeah, listen, And so this was a... Um, like a, a genuine TV show over there. It was all legal for me to do in LA. You know, I had my license, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it's the whole thing. Mm. It wasn't a secret. It was yep. a show, you know, that Sarah Silverman has done and Jack Black's done and all these, you know, kind of famous people had done as well. And so the Daily Telegraph or, you know, Murdoch Papers in yeah. general, I think it was, they, they did, you know, that, this was great. They had a picture of me, you know, like smoking like a <laughs> pipe of marijuana and they printed it in the paper like it was like a grainy photo they'd taken through a window as opposed to something that was widely available for everybody yeah. to watch online if they wanted to. And they, the thing that I was amazed by, and I've told this story heaps of times since, which is that I sat in LA because I was in LA when it happened. And so the time cycle is that I was already up. I knew this thing was in the papers. I knew that next day was going to be the news cycle of this, you know, embarrassing photos of me and the blah, blah, blah. So I kind of prepared myself. If anyone wants to genuinely have a go at me about it, I'll be patient with them. I'll explain that it was all perfectly legitimate and I just don't think that I have anything to be sorry about, you know, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, totally. Sat there all fucking day. Did not get one fucking message from anybody because I think everyone was across the fact that I smoked pot. Yeah. I talked about it for about a decade. It didn't really come as a surprise to anybody that it was a photo of yeah, me like, doing oh it. Oh, my God. In a legal way. But then what you found was the next rung of people, and this is where I think it probably relates to you, which is the people who needed someone else to give them permission, I would start to get messages from older people now who are on medicinal cannabis programs who at that time had never seen somebody be identified with that and talk about, you know, how it was helping them with pain relief. So I was getting like medical inquiries from like 60, 70, 80 year old women who like never would have broken wow. a law in their life, but are like, you know, I have, you know, osteoarthritis as well. And I'm in constant pain. Do you think this is something that could help me? And you know, I'd have to kind of constantly explain that. I love that. that. They've turned you into, it's at, you suddenly went into advocacy work. Oh yeah. I mean, that's right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even want to. Thanks to Murdoch. Yeah. It's true. And the other thing was, it was like they'd done a giant full page advertisement yeah. that I like to smoke pot. So everywhere I went for about the next two years, every stoner in the world would sidle up to me and give me a little sneaky handshake. And go, this, thank you. Thank you, Rupert. That is the gift that keeps giving. But I think that, you know, when somebody is looking at you, like, you mm. know, because you are not a new person on the scene in this community, this community, often with a candidate, the big trick's going to be, this is who I am. I am introducing 
in my point of view to the community. So tell us then. So they come, they recruit you, you decide to yeah. you decide to actually formalize it. Talk us through, you know, like what happens next, what this process is like, what you set out to realistically achieve. So the next the next part, what you've got to actually do in mm. this process is I didn't realise like you have to you've got to raise money for your campaign. Mm. And And like how much money are we talking about? Just over half a million. Fucking hell. Yes. That's what I said, Will. I went, <sighs> You fucking kidding? Like mm. and I, I don't think I realised there were things I didn't realise too that like a state election here is that's that's capped at what you know they can actually spend, but federal elections aren't. And to actually to turn a seat, you've often got to throw quite a lot of money at it. New South Wales, when you're in the Greens, I'm under the law, the rules that have been made by New South Wales Greens, mm-hmm. and because of Eddie Obey, the New South Wales Greens have brought in a cap of what ended up being six thousand six hundred in a financial year. So you can't take, I can't take donations, which I think is great. I love transparency. No corporate donations, no donations from businesses, no donations from property developers or anyone. So your money is clean. So you can, and I think it's the best, that that is the salute. You want to clean up politics, you do donation reform. Put a cap on what the donations can be and you've got to have basically real-time reporting. Exactly. It's amazing. That's the biggest thing is real-time reporting of who these donors are because the idea that like – because we do find out stories about terrible like donations that people – And it's real. And they're real. Like I mean there's – there is verified examples of them. The problem yeah. is we find out about them a year and a half after they fucking happened and therefore, you know, everybody thinks we can do nothing about it anymore. Well, yeah, the horse has bolted. Whatever bad, dodgy kind of policy has gone through, you know, where, you know, someone has managed to prosecute their, you know, their idea because of the, the money that they've given. We see that all the time. It's happening all the time. We're, we're moving, you know, the IPCC will come out and say, you know, we aren't going to make it basically. Our project, you know, the figures we're looking at, we're not going to make it to the 1.5%, you know, carbon emission reduction. But meanwhile, while, while companies, you know, they're funding elections, they're funding our major parties and you're going, you don't have to be a genius to see that that's not going to give you the outcome that you need. You don't, you don't, keep taking money from coal and gas companies to fund your way to bringing down carbon emissions. It's just it's just it's just dumb. It's like going to the heroin dealer and going, I'm just gonna buy some more heroin so I can give up heroin. Like it's not gonna happen. Yeah. I mean so, you can't tackle and nothing house- against you can't tackle housing or housing affordability when you are like your major donors to your party are like people who build houses. Yeah, and need to make a profit out of like selling houses. Yeah, or someone and has two hundred or- um, houses on short term yeah. holiday letting. You know, you're not gonna So anyway that was a lot of money. Like I went, holy hell. But what you found was people, when people believe in you, it's not hard. Like it's relentless. Mm. But people, it was much easier to raise money than I thought it was going to be. You People wanted to give money to the campaign. I had money coming from all over Australia because they wanted to support the campaign because they believed in in what we were doing. And they could see that it was important because we're talking about balance of power Um you know, in the lower house, you know, in federal parliament. So they understood the story. They knew what was they knew what was happening. The other thing, I had about a thousand volunteers in the end that we ended up getting out um, and, and doing that work. So what you're doing is you we do door knocks as well. We did a lot of listening. So we did thousands of door knocks. COVID impacted that. Like we would have done a lot more, but we weren't able to go out there and do it. So we did a lot of phone calls, like ringing people. I did like a door knock on a Jehovah, which was weird. That was my first, my first door knock because I was really nervous. Did they say, oh, this is how this feels? Well, yeah, well, the dude, he, he, 
I turn up, it's, I'm like, knock, knock, knock. I go, hello. And I've got the folder and he clocks me because he's a door knocker yeah, himself, knows. right? He yeah. clocks and he goes, and you can see him, he goes, no, he's running at the door to close, like he's opened oh, it. Man, come on. And then he's of closing all people, it. Of yeah. all people, he should be the one. I know, that's what I say. I said, and then he goes, I can't, we can't, I, I don't vote because I'm a Jehovah Witness. And oh. I went, mate. I've got my end of the world story here. You need to listen to my story <laughs> because, you know, because you have been written. It was quite funny. And I'm, in the end, he, I said, why don't you vote? And he goes, because we can't, we can only vote for God in God's kingdom, apparently. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I mean, I, it doesn't feel like that's a good excuse. That's I can't a imagine, stupid excuse. I mean, I can't, like, I think. God wasn't running. I, I, and also, I don't think that God is running up no. there either. I, I think know. Sorry. I, I got to be honest with you. I think if anything, <laughs> at its kindest, it's a benevolent dictatorship. I know. God There's is no, not on the ballot. <laughs> yeah, not, we don't hear about every three years there being an, an election for a new God. I know. Imagine that. That'd be great. <laughs> Who's running? Well, someone's this Krishna. Um, this anyway. Um, so there was that. So it was really about getting out into your community. And my big thing was so the good idea, by the way. If we just said to people, <laughs> we're like, you know what? Like all this different religion stuff is causing a lot of problems. So every year we're going to yeah. let you, every three years we're going to have a election for who the best God is. <laughs> It'll mean you'll have to get out in your communities. Oh my God. And we're going to elect, we're all Muslims for three years. I'm I sorry, love guys. That. That's that campaigning. Was, yeah. Imagine campaigning. Like, well, that's kind of, I, I guess that is been society, hasn't it? Religions have been campaigning. Look at the Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> they have to change their campaigners. I don't think George Pill was very good for their PR. Um, um, when you are door knocking with people or yeah. you're listening to people, mm. like, is there a, a game plan for what that engagement is meant to lead to? Like, you know, I yeah. mean, obviously you like on a really transactional level, of course, a candidate wants the person to vote for them. Like that's the most transactional of all yeah. levels. But but there's obviously other things that are not just that. What are you looking for in that interaction? Well, you want to see, you want to listen to what they care about most of all because you, you want to make sure that when you're speaking to your community, it's based on actual real, real information and data. So you get a lot of good data about what's impacting your community. So we just got housing, 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 climate, 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 housing, bins. Mm. Uh, <laughs> someone's always angry about bins. Um, and I went, sorry, federal parliament, not big on the bins, but <laughs> Albo drives drives the truck down. Um, I'll take your bin. Um so it's funny what people – I went – Potholes. Yeah, so you're asking what people care about. Yeah. So you're listening to see whether – okay, so some people you go, there's no way. You'll never vote. So I'll listen to you. It's interesting mm. to hear, but – or you won't go back again. So you go, they'll never turn. But there's people that sit in the middle that, you know, when they're issues and you might listen to them and go back to them and go, you asked me about this. And often I'd follow people up a month later with what they'd asked. People mm. love that. Well, of course they do because you've actually listened, yeah. responded and got back to them. And often those people will move towards, you've got your solid voters that will vote Greens and they'll vote anywhere, but people in sort of in the middle that may or may not. And and it's really about developing that relationship and listening and going, well, how, how do you have responsive politics? And I actually made one guy I spoke to, he goes, <clears throat> goes what's the Greens' view on hunting and fishing. Oh, yeah. Hunting and fishing. Was it? No, hunting and shooting. Was it hunting and shooting? And I said, look, Greens aren't big fans of hunting or shooting, I'm going to have to say. And he goes, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to vote for you anyway. And I went, 
I don't think it's the right vote. And he goes, no, I am. I went, no, you shouldn't. He goes, no, I'm going to do it. Mm. And I went, why? And he goes, because you actually rang me up. No one's ever done that. And I went, oh, well, I said, in, I guess, without actual, you know, forest and some sort of protection, you probably will have nothing to hunt or shoot. Oh, so. mate, the Greens are in favour of there being more animals. So technically, yeah, technically, level, there is. Say, we'll be taking your guns off you, mate. So yeah. you <laughs> Anyway, yeah. that was, it was actually quite funny how even someone that felt like they weren't even aligned, I was going, I don't know if this is the right vote for you. And it's it, interesting to me, though, that like we so so I grew up in you know a regional area and very much my, I mean I'm very aware that my you know father and I assume my mother have only ever voted national. I can't yeah. imagine that like there used to be local farmers meetings yeah. and where the local politician would be you know in our lounge room and you know you you know I'd meet Peter McGoran or whoever the local member happened to be at the time who was a national. Yeah. And so I knew nothing else other than that really. Like it was only when I went to school in Sale where I started to have friends whose parents were school teachers and stuff where you might hear some story about why labor might have some good ideas about you know like working people and these sort of things and but now like what you tend to find is and particularly like in a place like this where you do have a lot of people who live in the country like where we are right now like i'm a like you know i'm an inner city person who like is living in the country the person next to me over there, like, is a beef farmer. The person next to me over there is a beef farmer. The dude over there is a horse and beef farmer. Like, you know, they're... I love that, yeah. You know, they're, but they're probably, you know, I mean, they're possibly traditionally people that the nationals would say these are our voters. But what you also notice with these people is farmers, I know this from my family, they're super aware of climate change. It always used to really amuse me when the National Party would be so anti-climate yeah. and climate scientists when you're like, have you ever talked to a fucking farmer? Yeah. Because all farmers talk about and think about constantly is what the weather is like. My dad can tell you what the weather was like on any fucking day for the last 60 years. Like, yeah, yeah they, they, know. they notice. And, and that is, that's really true. I don't think it can – I think there's more and more people that were probably traditional voters like that that are moving across that are understanding – why regenerative practice might be better and, and what soil health means. And maybe I don't need to blast my lamb with, Mon, you know, Monsanto chemicals because I'm actually fucking up my crop mm. and not making it better. Like, And those messages aren't coming from political parties. They're coming from other farmers. Like yeah. it's led from the ground. And I think, I think there's a big – I think – I think it is around listening to some of the best practice that comes from other farmers as well. And they are changing. I come from Kingaroy, you know, Joe Bioki Peterson's area. Like I come from a super conservative National Party voting area as well. And you you can kind of I, – I, I think there's – I think there really is a shift and you can't assume what people's voting styles are. And I, I think climate, you know, there is no bigger issue than climate. Climate is, you know, it – it is the all-encompassing issue because if we fuck that up, you don't get a second crack at it. Like, that's it. That's the issue. So there's people that still don't believe in it, of course, as we know, the deniers, and you can't do much for that. Like that's. But the problem is now that, like, I think there's very few genuine deniers anymore. There are some, but there are very few genuine deniers yeah. anymore. There is a lot of people who are living in denial yeah. Like, you know, that our actions, who believe it, who say, yes, we support this and we believe the science and, you know. I mean, the IPCC literally just put out a report and they said, oh, look, this is basically our last report because we've yeah. run out of ways we can say it's all fucked. Yeah, I know. Like, if you're like, I mean, why are we wasting it. our time? Like, yeah, we're so out. We're out. Look, we've told you. Yeah. It's fucked. We've really desperately got to do something about it. We cannot mm. keep saying this over and over if you're not going to listen to us. 
But like a lot of us, and I mean, we talked about this at the start, right? Which is this idea of sometimes you have to live your life and that means living in denial. But as a society, the idea that we might be sleepwalking ourselves to 1.5, 2%, 3, 3 degrees warming, like th th those are things that it's not like a thermostat. This is the problem with the climate. Like yeah. that if we get up to 1.5 or, or 2 degrees hotter, that is going to have ramifications on species and the world and countries and all these sort of things that we can't just turn the thermostat back down to. Even if we did, it's, those things have already late. happened. Yeah, it's kind of like you're going like the, the emergency, like that kind of, I guess it's that sense of urgency that so much of us, and that's part of, you know, why I stepped up into politics going, well, if I can make a difference in this electorate here, the more of us that step in, the more unexpected people that don't come from the political frame necessarily, that can be disruptors, the better because you can't leave this to the big parties anymore or the big players because they're going to fucking take us over the cliff, absolutely over the cliff. They, We are not going to stop the bus in time and you're not going to be able to pull it back. We're already, you know, we already know all the data that's around so many species that we lose, the sort of, you know, the impact of, you know, you know, rivers that become, un, you know, unlivable for fish. Big fish kills happening, you know, left, right and centre. We lived in, you know, I was campaigning around climate change and then, you know, all of a sudden we get hit by a catastrophic climate-induced flood and, and climate isn't this abstract idea anymore. It's visceral and you're standing in it and... And you're going, what else do you need? Like, how, how, how else can you keep, you know, telling this story? But So, uh, the floods are interesting because it was such a – it was like timing-wise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was when – I mean, spoilers for anyone who doesn't know. You didn't win. You went very fucking <laughs> – you went very close to winning. Oh, it came really – they held it over for a week. It was mm. one of three seats yeah. in Australia that held over. But, you know, it didn't – it didn't it lost a lot of votes to – um, I think nearly 20% went to independent mm. vote, which is usually 5 to 7%. So a lot of I lost a lot of vote because of the vaccine yeah. um, mandate anger. Such a tough time in this community, really in this tough. area. I mean, that is the mm. – but you were so visible during the floods yeah. and during the natural disasters. One of the things that I just wanted to, before we keep talking about this, is that until you've lived through a natural disaster, I think that – while the thing is happening, there is a level of attention. Although I think yeah. that we have disaster fatigue now. And if these events are going to get more and more common, then what's going to happen is... Because I remember with the, the bushfires, like which had only been sort of a year or two before then, there was this real idea of everyone in Australia is in this together. We all care about these people. And then, of course, COVID happened. And I think it disrupted life so much. We all went through something that when the floods happened up here... There was a moment where it captured some sort of a national attention, but I remember being in Adelaide when they, they the first one started, and honestly, it wasn't really a blip on the radar there. It wasn't. No. Whereas for here, yeah, I mean, you asked me today how, how to get to the house. There's only one place way to get to the house. There used to be two because one of the roads, like a year ago collapsed in the floods and there's no sign that that road's ever going to get repaired there are businesses in that little town there that are, have gone under in that time because the majority of their customers used to go along that road there is a whole and that's just like a microcosm down the end of yeah. my road of something that's been played out in much more disastrous ways across this community still a year on and still will be a year on from now or even a year on from then oh uh, it's been it is really hard because everything's mo it moves so fast. Mm. Like it's a rolling impact of, of what's happened in our region. And the worst of it is that I started visiting some some people recently, and I I went to interview people f 
to do a follow-up story on what, what it's like a year on. And people are living a dual reality. Like those of us who weren't impacted directly by, by not being not losing property or access or or being homeless were impacted because it was it was immense and, and devastating. But we've gone on. These people have lived this life on the phone to you know, you know how bad it is being on hold. They've been on the hold phones are on hold to insurance companies to you know service New South Wales for at least three days a week for a year they're mentally fucked they don't know what lies ahead of them they're being screwed down they're not like it's such an awful reality so when I interviewed them an interview that would usually take two hours took eight and I went how does this and then I went oh my god they've all got PTSD that's why because nobody could nobody could walk a straight line so the real disaster that happens after any um, massive impact like a flood like that is is afterwards. And you, there's no chopper footage of this. You can't fly over these people's devastated lives and get amazing footage of them standing on their roofs. But now they are, they are more at risk than they ever were. Someone just said the other day to me, goes... Don't send us any more fucking social workers. We don't, you only need social workers when you don't give us solutions. We want solutions, not social workers. And I'm not, not against social workers, no. not talking them down, but you know, you can't keep sending mental health support to people who you're putting in distress and giving yeah. mental health conditions too. Yeah, like thanks, that's, thanks for treating the symptom, not the cause. I know, like you're going that, like, we do need to address mental yeah. health sort of situations, of but actually addressing, mm. you know, the key foundations mm. of what makes might make people actually mm. mentally well. Yeah. I'm mostly depressed because I have nowhere to live <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> no exactly. income. I reckon if you can help with those things, I actually <laughs> might actually have a much sunnier I disposition. Know. And you go, that's and amazing. And then these social workers can work with the people who have genuine issues. Exactly. That so with. that's what it – so, yeah, it was – Sometimes it was so so big, and after all of that, like it came really close. You're kind of out. You're kind of reading. You get your notes from. You're campaigning on, you know, you're on message every day. You get your little email about what you're sort of, you know, you're sort of trying to stay across everything that's happening. Then you're trying to push government on on what's happening. For instance, I went down to Canberra for budget, and you know, to, when when. Um, I think the coalition were delivering. Um, I think Frydenberg was delivering uh-huh. <laughs> his last final big moment, just d- delivering the um, the budget. And it's quite funny when you go down for that because what you can't see on the TV when you what, if you ever watch those kind of amazing moments, which are boring as shit. But in the back gallery where I was sitting, it's all the people that have come to see what their money has bought them. Like that is this is like the <laughs> grotesque wealth. Oh my God. It's horrible. It's like a sh- it's oh. a it's a freak show of a privilege, yeah. and it, you just sit going, "Oh, this is horrible." But at that time, when we were there, and this is how stupid I just find this stupid. Like you go, uh, "Safe seat up in North Queensland have been pushing this bill through." For, it's, it sounds really boring, but it was a re- government reinsurance bill, and that's for an area that had been impacted in North Queensland that had been impacted by cyclones. And all the government reinsurance bill meant was that. The government would back the insurance so that people could have decent premiums so they could rebuild and get bank loans and they could actually try and rebuild their lives. Fair enough. Great. And we'd put an amendment. There was an amendment that had gone through to include the re- our region that had been hit around Lismore, you know, this area. Well, why don't you just include them in that as well so that all these people, when they rebuild, um, can rebuild knowing that they're not living in an uninsurable area, that this would just be yeah. there. And nobody backed it. So it just got dropped. 
it was it was it could have been passed like that. That could have happened in this in you know within a day of it passing through the Senate and going back through the back through the um, lower house, and it didn't. And then someone else, I think they were running, I think then it became someone else's political platform that we're going to push for government reinsurance. And I went, your party just yeah. voted it down. And now you, it can take a year for that bill to get up again. That kind of dumb not working together, like when you don't work together with some sort of vision and it's all point scoring um, because nobody was prepared to work together to have a solution for a region that was so impacted, that makes you furious. Um, I'm aware that we have to finish up, but I've got a couple more questions. Yeah. Firstly, uh, if people want to know more about um, you running for the federal election, yeah. there is both a documentary which is called... See Mandy Run. See Mandy Run. Where can people find See Mandy Run? Um, it, well, look, it was on... Where com- does it live? That was on Compass. Is so it, it uh, might be on ABC... ABC iView? iView. I reckon. Um... Or if have, it was on Compass, it would be on ABC you IV, think so. I think. But it, see Mandy Run, if you Google that, I'm sure. The, the it is actually, you know where it is? It's on DocuPlay, the full-length version. Okay. That's where it is. Um, I was trying to think because I know there's a longer version um, of if you want to see that. And I'm doing, um, I've, I've turned a kind of, because I figured if I went through the election and I won, I'd, I could be, I'd be an MP. Mm. And I figured if I lost, I could write a show. Show, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, I know, you go, oh, well. <laughs> I will lick my wounds, but you know what? I didn't go. I didn't go out. I didn't do this for the experience. I, this was not. Um, I did this to. I went in. Oh, you to ran win. to win, and, I ran all, to win. and you almost won. And I got. That's close. the other thing. Is you? Yeah, and it's you almost fucking did brutal. You should mm. see conceding sucks. Mm. Like conceding, it was like you know you got to you had to ring up and yeah. say well done, congratulations. <laughs> so hard. Like, it was really, it was actually, that was the kind of funniest part. So you're going like, oh, like it's this, and there's this whole thing like you want to concede, but you can't concede. As soon yeah. as you concede, if you, and they'll be calling it mm. and you can't concede because if you can concede and it's close, you can't get a recount. There's all these mental games that go on at the end. Oh, But anyway, I really wanted to win, but now um, – I'm still there doing the advocacy work and I'm still, you know, impacting change and maybe I will run again. I was going to say, will you run again? Probably. Yeah. I probably will because when I finished, I went, I don't know because I nearly broke myself, literally. And then I went, when you get your head around the idea, it's not so much about winning. You're part of a – you're just ramming a door. Hmm. And if, if I can ram that door so someone else can go through it, fucking great i'll have one more ram to knock that door down so i can go through if not me the next person so when when i got my head around the frame of that i went i'm i'm good with that i am good with that okay look i'm gonna i'm gonna just one more question sure uh so uh i I stand it's standard question that i you always used to ask on this show was what do you think happens when we die do you think does that do you Ah. think about that at all yeah i definitely think about what happens Mm. Um, when we die, it's it, my dad died when I was really li- I was six, and so I thought about it a lot. You know, having had I did, and I remember maybe a bit of a weird kid. <laughs> what was a weird kid anyway? But because I thought uh, I don't know. I guess as a kid, unless you lose like a really si- significant person in your life, you don't think about it. But because he did die, it was an alcoholic. Died thirty years old. Died in a car accident. And I thought he just died because he was stupid, and I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know you actually died. And but I was so obsessed by death, I actually thought that you only died if you did stupid stuff. And I remember the first moment of finding out that you did die, and I was about 
six or seven, it was in that year of my dad dying. And I remember going through this really deep existential crisis of that. What's the point? Like I could really feel like what the fuck is the point? And then I had to kind of come back from that. It's like, it was a pretty dark moment for a kid to just go, what's the point? Um, and I think, you know, without thinking of, you know, there was the Christian, I was brought up Catholic and I never really believed in this whole idea of heaven, like a big cloudy waiting room is kind of awful, you know, purgatory. <laughs> How bad is purgatory? <laughs> purgatory is, is, is just a fucked up place where you just suffer, like the place of suffering, you know. That I is, mean, this is purgatory. Yeah. This, like we're all in purgatory. We are all in the place of yeah. suffering. Um, so I think, I, I don't know, I think when you die, like I, 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 do we come back? I think we have another crack at it. Um, and I like to feel like we just keep having a crack at it. Like we're in this circular thing where you're just kind of in like a, till eventually you, maybe, but maybe it's backwards. Maybe you start off, but maybe dogs are higher evolution than we are. That's probably a higher soul. But it gets simpler. It gets simpler. Yeah. Like you go, oh, fucking I get it. It's fucking <laughs> eat shit, die, root, smell. Love, <laughs> fucking gone. That's it. I, I fucking mean, nailed it. My dog does have a lot less responsibilities than yeah. I do. That I'm, could be really nice. So, yeah, I, I, I thought about, I've always thought about, you know, I think I think about death less now um, that I'm closer to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mandy Nolan, I could, like, we all have to do this again because we barely got started yeah, on some we of this, but this was so you. much fun. Um, thank you for being my first episode back doing uh, this show for a very long time. I'm sure that people out there are also grateful. And um, please go and see Mandy's show. So uh, where do they find information about Because uh, people from all over are going to yeah. listen to this. So if they want to see one of your shows, whether it be the show that you're doing about this or whether one of the shows you do with Alan or any of these, like, yeah. where do people find information about you your stuff? Can, you, look, look, you can go to my website, which is mandynolan.com.au or the, the show The Candidate, which is at Melbourne Comedy Festival for a month, is on the Melbourne Comedy Festival website And where page. are you playing in Melbourne? At Town Hall. Do you know what room you're yeah, in? Yeah, down the bottom in the Regent Room. Oh, the Regent Room. Yeah, I like really, the Regent Room. It's a sweet little room. I've done the Regent yeah, Room before. It's really yeah, cute. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's intimate. Well, you know what it is, though, as well, is the Regent Room actually will be a really – like it's got – because the Town Hall obviously is yes. a Town Hall – the Regent Room has a little sense of, you know, you're a candidate. You're I know. It feel, it's what I thought. It kind of it feels, feels appropriate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It would be kind of weird doing that show mm. in the back room of a pub, you know. So it, it Well, the be- only other room is, I don't know if they use it anymore, but uh, they, the council chambers. Have you ever been in the council oh, chambers done in that there? One. No, it literally is your council chambers. <laughs> and so everyone's like, it's <laughs> in that sort cool. of realm. Like everyone's that. sitting yeah. at their like parliamentary chairs. I think people That's would great. be, they'd, act, they'd heckle in a very parliamentary way in that. I love just that. Be, order, order. <laughs> Yeah, but if you Google me, you'll find me wherever. I'm, I'm, I've got Women Like Us show. I've got another touring show called Country Witches Association. Um, Mandy Nolan, various stuff. You'll find me. Thank you, I'm Mandy there. Nolan. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate you having a chat. Listener.